All right. We have Brian Bradley, managing partner at Bradley Legal Corp. Landon and I have been looking forward to this podcast for months. Um, I shot Brian an email, just a cold email, which I was actually very happy with the way that I actually structured that email. It was one of my my better cold emails out there. Just simply asking like Brian to come on the show because we have been listening to a ton of podcasts that Brian has been on. And Brian is one of the people in the space of asset protection in this nuanced space that it's very tough to get specific answers. He is a thought leader in that space. Just wrote a book called Overexposed, which I'm super excited to dive into. I mean, I'll let you explain the the accolades. I know you're also like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert. So thank you so much for coming on the show, man. No, no, thank you. And like, yeah, I guess you guys really do your research to know about the you know jujitsu stuff. Um, but yeah, it's going to be an important topic. I'm excited. You know, thanks guys for having me on again. And we're, I think we're going to do some great myth busting. And a lot of ch- laws have changed um, just even over this year that we really need to dive into. And I go over a lot of this stuff in detail in my new book, like you mentioned, Overexposed, which last night just hit you know the number one bestseller spot. And so, you know, there I, I really break down the world of asset protection and how we got to the point of this crazy messed up legal system and world that we're living in and that we're investing in. And then how do we protect ourselves going forward in it? Because we're not going to stop buying and investing. So we got to understand the world we're in and then what we do from there. Well said. And, and disclaimer, everyone that's listening, this is not going to be your typical general mindset business podcast. We're going in the weeds. If you want to learn about asset protection and as you build net worth, how to really be bulletproof in the side of the scope of the law, this is going to be the podcast that you're listening to. Um, Good stuff, Brian. Why don't you take the first couple of minutes just to at least give us your background. Tell us a little bit more about how you got to where you're at today, and then we'll dive in. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I got into asset protection from actually being a trial lawyer. You know, most people who do asset protection generally transition and do it from estate planning and there's not very many pure asset protection attorneys out there. I mean, I know we were talking off air about um, why there's so many different ways, you know, and viewpoints and opinions on what to do. And it's because there's not very many specialists in this area of law. And it's like any area of business that you go into, you generally do what you're taught at the firm you go into. And then most people cast large nets, right? Because they're trying to create a profit line in a business and not everyone's going to focus on the very high-end stuff and high-end clients like I do because that decreases your percentage and your margin, right? So you focus like an insurance business. You cast a large net, which means, well, everybody can use an LLC. So let's just focus on LLCs. And the knowledge kind of stops there. And then you have to kind of hunt around people who have more steps above there. Okay, what's the next layer? What's the next layer? What's this world of trust? So we have to unravel this and it's not really talked about more. And being a trial lawyer, I just got tired of people being sued and their lives just completely turned upside down and coming to me after the fact, you know, like, oh, I got sued. Um, What can I do now? Like nothing. There's nothing I can do for you now. I'm sorry. Um, So I hunted down who were the top best asset protection attorneys at the time in the nation. And I worked as an affiliate with all three of them. And then just from you know being a trial lawyer, I realized what would I not want to combat and try to pierce through? And then I just transitioned my practice and worked with um, my current partner, Douglas, um, purely in asset protection. And um, that's kind of how I got into, into it and why I really cared about it. And I go into this in depth. And if I ramble, just cut me off whenever. Um, but I think we need to kind of have some context of why we even care about this topic. And I go into it a lot in my book um, because I try to set the scene of the world that we're in. And the legal system is just completely broken, plain and simple. We're a Sue Happy Nirvana. 
And it's sad that we're living in a world where legal battles threaten to drain your hard-earned wealth. And to give you more context of this, the legal system drastically changed over the last 40 years. It's no longer about justice, but creating divide and redistributing your wealth from the haves, which is you and your listeners, to the have-nots. And in my book, again, I go over the in-depth of the history of this and the big changes in the cases that led to this. And to quickly summarize that the problem is things that didn't happen in the past or that weren't even allowed to happen in the past, like contingency fee lawyers or law firm advertising, they're commonplace now. And then this created a cultural shift of a predatory legal system that's no longer about justice, but about profits. And so our legal system is now run by trial lawyers and special interest groups who don't want to discourage lawsuits, but rather increase the size of a victim class. And then that creates a society of victims. And so we completely took out accountability and responsibility of our own actions. And so this makes lawsuits now an easy get rich quick scheme for those who want to play the lawsuit lottery. And the sad truth is like we knock attorneys all the time, you know, but while attorneys may stoke the fire that drives the American litigation engine, Without the public's now endless appetite pursuing each other, there wouldn't be a litigation crisis. But the sad fact is that this really is the reality that we're living in and that we're investing in. And lawsuits are now the new intrinsic part of American life. Lawsuits have now become as American as baseball and apple pie. And then when we get into the role of the high net worth and the affluent families that I work in, we now have to take a macroeconomic global look at it. And the big picture really is that on top of our destroyed legal system and our destroyed tort system, we have a global financial system that has structurally deep-rooted issues along with government-backed fiat currencies that are now in question. And this is, you know, the U.S. dollar is not excluded from this. We've got monetary policies that are like very plain and simple, right? Inflate or die. Um, and government's looking for deep and accessible pools of financing and money, meaning your money, your assets, along with financial repression, monetary and economic manipulation. And this just now adds to the challenges of how to effectively protect your wealth. So by layering your protection system, which we'll talk about what that even means later on, that is now your modern best bet to level the playing field. We just then have to clean up the misconception of what actually works and doesn't work. Well said. So if business owners are listening to this podcast, I mean, there are so many ways to go about creating an asset protection structure, right? But let's let's right the wrongs real quick. Let's talk about like some really high level misconceptions that we hear, and then yeah. let's go deep into some specific scenarios. Yeah. So um, I think the big misconception that we'll get into will be like LLCs, and I want to spend some time breaking down that. But the big one that I that I honestly get the most calls on is after the fact lawsuits. Call you know people calling me after they're already into a lawsuit, um, and people need to realize that you know one what is asset protection? Asset protection is simply placing a legal barrier between your assets and the person suing you, a potential creditor, before it's needed, like a safe or you know we're putting all of our values into the safe, you know guns, jewelry, you know cash. Anything of value goes in the legal barrier are safe. Now, this all, again, is critical. The timing of this is critical. It all has to be set up beforehand. And this is it's like getting car insurance after you get in an accident, house insurance after your house burnt down. Good luck, right? You're not going to be getting it. And it's demonstrated beautifully in a 2010 case called SEC versus Solo, 
S-O-L-O-W. And here's a situation where Ms. Solo's trust was attacked by the SEC. So, you know, like the man, the government, a super creditor um, to collect her husband's fines from engaging in a fraudulent trading scheme. So essentially a bad person doing a bad thing. So don't get me wrong. You know, the Solos, they're the villains in this story. All right. The court found that he made a fraudulent transfer after the SEC judgment was entered against him. So what he did was he assigned his assets over to his wife's trust to protect them after the judgment. This is no bueno, right? This is just straight up fraud. Uh, Miss Solo was held in contempt of court, or Mr. Solo was, he was held in contempt of court, but, and this is a big but, um, 100% of the assets were protected. So I use this case to demonstrate two very important things at the same time. One is the power of an offshore trust, which we can recap later on when we break down, you know, asset protection trust, if we got the time for that. But Mr. Solo was blatantly wrong and he, again, is the bad guy in the story, but his assets were safe. The SEC couldn't get to them. So the trust worked. That's point number one. But what sucks is he was held in contempt of court, you know, like, which is horrible. No one wants to be held in contempt of court, but why? You know, why was he held in contempt of court? What did he do wrong? The second point is that this case goes to the timing of setting up the protection plan. He transferred the assets too late. He was late to the game. He did this after the fact, after the lawsuit, after the judgment. And that was fraudulent. And that opened the door up for the court to hold him in civil contempt of court. So the big takeaway, number one, is that the planning has to be set up before the lawsuit, not after the fact. Do you mind if I pause you right there? Because I've, I've heard some uh, some words being thrown around about this limited power of appointment and how that could potentially create some workaround around this fraudulent transfer during that time. What's your knowledge base on that, Like, like inside of that limited power of appointment? If there it is. comes down, yeah, it really just comes down to like a point of control at the end of the day. And there's cases on where you have like even like offshore trust. Okay, when you create an offshore trust, you're going to generally have like a trust protector, an offshore trustee, and then you'll be, um, you know, the trustee and the beneficiary and seller of your own trust. What we're trying to do is take away control. Who has control at the end of the day in a lawsuit? And so this will go down to like irrevocability versus revocability and a control issue. What you don't want is for a judge to say, okay, hey, you have limited power of control or you have the, you know, the authority. Even if I remove you as the trustee, if you're still, for example, the um, 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 trust protector, yeah, okay, great. We removed you as the trustee, but you still maintain control and authority in the limited scope, if not whatever, over that trust to make changes. So at the end of the day, for a trust to work, it has to be one, irrevocable, meaning it can't be changed. And two, we have to remove you from a, a judge saying, hey, Antonio, hey, Landon, you still have some sort of exercise of control and authority over this trust or this asset. Revoke it, meaning change it and give that creditor access to it, or I will hold you in civil contempt of court. So that's why it is very imperative when you're setting up an asset protection you know, structure and you are high risk, high net worth to have an, an option to where you are now removed from control, all control. You still own your assets. You still get the beneficial use and enjoyment of them. But now we're taking away the U.S.'s court's authority to say, hey, I'm going to hold you in civil contempt of court because of your control mechanism or you know, revoke that. So that's really where this comes down to. It's just a simple issue and matter of are you in control of this at the end of the day or are you not? Sure. So sounds awesome. How do we do it? Right. Let, let's talk about some actual implementation and how to start building this throughout the years, because I have to assume that this doesn't all have to be done at once. You can start chipping away at it as you start to build wealth. So yeah. 
And, and we've heard a lot of your podcast regarding real estate, right? If you guys yeah. want to listen to like the real estate specific asset protection, visit, you know, Brian on Ken McElroy's podcast or the Bigger Pockets podcast. All of our clients are business owners. That a lot yeah. of them own real estate as well. So let's talk about that structure and how to start creating the layers of separation between yourself and these assets inside of the business scope. Yeah, and I think that's a great, great way to to start is just like, because there's a different starting point for any client. People will call me and I have to evaluate where they are in this matrix. So let's identify what these concepts are in the matrix and then we can start nitpicking it you know, from there. So I want you and your listeners to think about winter, right? We're, we're going on a ski trip somewhere. It's snowing. What do we do when we go outside in the cold in this winter? We dress in layers, right? And so our tools that we use are three different tools, like three different types of clothing. We got LLCs, base layer number one, management companies, which can be, you know, different type of entities. That's going to be base layer number two, like a sweater. And then your outer cold water shell, you know, layer, your waterproof layer, you know, um, that's going to be your asset protection trust. So we got LLCs, partnerships, and trust. And so, again, think about winter. When it comes to asset protection, like I mentioned, we have different layers. The first entry layer is your base layer. It's the foundation. It sits on your skin just like a, a thin shirt that you're going to put on. This is LLCs and insurance. So anything risky, even if you're a business, um, you know, owner, or if you're investing in real estate, it really doesn't matter what you're investing in or what it is. If it's a risky asset, that's going to go into an LLC or a business entity. And then we're going to scale and grow the protection system from there. The LLC layer generally is going to start when you either have nothing and you're just starting out, or if you're investing in real estate, it's going to be like zero to three units. Or if you are creating a business entity, I would say, talk to your CPA but realize there's a big holdup between creating an S-Corp or a C-Corp for tax mitigation purposes and what we can and can't do for asset protection. And I can break that down in more detail, like either now or into LLC, when we talk about LLCs, if you yeah, want. Let's, let's, let's pause right there because that's a, that's a big thing that we wanted to walk through because like LLCs yeah. can then elect to be taxed as these certain things. Yeah. Like wouldn't that be the most beneficial and easiest way to go about it, right? It's just starting mm-hmm. up an LLC and then electing for the taxes. You would think yes, right? And so would your CPA because what is your CPA's job to do? Mitigate your taxes. I want to pay. I want creating a business. I want to pay as little as taxes as humanly possible. So everyone's you know conversation with their CPA. Great. Now I don't know. For an example, let's just say you have like a bunch of truck beds. All right, like because it's just a client that actually that has like seven million worth of truck beds, um, you know, for for his business. And then you have this LLC tax selected as an S corp, so it, it's now an S corp. Or it is just a straight up S corp that you created. Well, what happens when the business starts growing and you have all these assets in an S corp? Well, the problem with S corps is if they get sued, the shares can be frozen by a judge. All assets in the S corp now are stuck. Or you're starting to grow your portfolio. Your business is growing. You have you know went from like two truck beds to seven million worth of truck beds, or you know a hundred million worth of real estate. Or you're a you know doctor with a medical practice, and all of your equipments in this S corp or LLC tax as an S corp. Then you're like, oh my excrement, Brian. Like I have everything in one you know business entity. This is not good. What happens if I get sued? The problem of having all of your assets in this S corp or tax you know LLC tax less tax elected S corp is I can't move the assets out of that business entity without you owing the deferred taxation back to the IRS. And most people don't carry that much liquidity in cash, like plain and simple. Like even when I have clients with, you know, 50, hundred million dollars and they have a massive portfolio 
And I'm like, okay, how long has this been growing in that portfolio for? Well, about 10, 15 years. All right, let's talk to your CPA. If we're going to bleed out these assets out of this business entity, we need to know how much you pay. You got to pay the IRS back. They don't have that type of money sitting in. So what happens? The assets are stuck and frozen. So then we have to get really creative with our you know, wealth managers to say, how much, like, how can we start moving these out over time? But God forbid you get sued in that area of time. So is it good to create S-corps or tax-selected S-corps? Yes, if tax mitigation is your only concern, right? That's important. But then we have to think about what happens as the business grows, we start accumulating more assets or whatever we're investing in, and we get sued. So I would say, if you want to do a tax election, create the business entity as the S-corp for cash flow. And then hold the assets out of the business structure in like an LLC, then lease the assets back to the business. And that way, if the business gets sued, it's basically worthless. The assets are still safe. And if you did get sued, you can still operate and run your business. And then the assets are then held in the asset protection structure. And that way is kind of the best of both worlds right there. So it's a conversation that really has to be had in the beginning, which most people won't have because they're like, I just need to get started. They get it. We get impatient. I just, and I don't want to pay the the man. I don't want to pay the government. So we really need to have these conversations with you and your CPA. What's the short-term goal? What's the long-term goal? And what are, what are we, what are we buying? So for any business owners listening to this right now that are like, okay, great. Makes sense. I've heard about how I should probably be creating some more separation with things like logistically, what does that process even look like? Like I, I own a business and maybe I, I have a you know a bunch of equipment inside that business and I've got, you know, uh, half a million bucks in, in the, in the bank business bank account. And I'm just concerned about what if I get sued, I'm not getting sued, but I just want to create a better, more robust organizational structure. Maybe I own the building I operate in as well, all inside the same, you know, the same situation at what point. So I, there's kind of a couple questions in this, but like, what does that logistically look like to go and really restructure this, to clean this up, to sleep better at night? And then also at what point is it worth to go through that due diligence? I would do it as soon as possible, you know, because the last thing you want to do is kick the can down the road and then you created right. such a big mess that is going to cost you so much money to fix it that then what happens? Most of my clients will just be like, that's way too much to fix this mess. I'm just going to live with the mess. So then if they do get sued, they're going to lose everything. If they're going to have to fix the mess, they're going to have to pay a finance, like a large sum. So it's better to look at where you're at now, what's your short-term goal, what's your long-term goal, and then stay in communication with your attorneys and your CPAs as you grow so that we can do our job and offer you the smart advice. And then sometimes you need to realize, well, I'm talking to my CPA, but your CPA is not a lawyer. And so you need to also then talk about the liability side of things. So that's where it's important to talk to all the clogs of your team when you're making a decision. And so that's where I would say it it, it should start at the beginning. So you don't create this massive mess down the line. Yeah. Yeah. So to go into the same vein, of restructuring, or, or maybe I'm about to start a new business venture, or maybe I'd like to create some more separation. Mm-hmm. What's this? What's all this buzz about Wyoming, Delaware, Nevada, yeah, yeah. Arizona? Like, talk about that because that's a big hot TikTok topic we see everybody talking about. Like, yeah. talk about just that structure and what that all looks like, and just so, expand in that space if you don't mind. Absolutely. So I'm going to ramble a little, but this is I think this is really yes. important on this one. And um, you're going to ask, like you're, we're unpacking in one question, probably like four different topics to answer, <laughs> to answer this. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I'd be like, get the book because I really break this down in, in great detail. Um, but like you said, like this is a really hard 
um, topic for people to understand because this is first layer, right? Base layer, LLCs. Um, the confusion is just like, where do we set these things up? And then, like you said, you hear Delaware, Wyoming, Texas, Nevada. And it really just comes down to um, understanding the case law. And what we're talking about here is charging order protection and corporate veil piercing, you know, big legal fancy words. But this is such a big topic that I had to devote a lot of time in my book because there's um, a lot of case law on this. And what we have to remember is that first, LLCs began in the 70s with the goal of blending the elements of corporations and partnerships without the downside of double taxation. So it's important to realize first that asset protection was never the end goal of LLCs, any LLCs. So by nature, they aren't the strongest strategy. And they told us this when they named them, right? Like they told us straight up in their name, limited. Again, it's right in the name. They offer limited veil of protection. That veil is better than nothing, right? Like something's better than nothing, but it's fragile and it can be pierced just like that you know, thin, flimsy piece of fabric that covers the face of a bride on her wedding day. So when we set the limited liability companies up, we have to keep the limitations in mind that come with them. And it really then comes down to, you know, just like, what are you holding and where are you holding it at? Which comes down to the, you know, the, the root of the question of what you ask. And so I love picking on California because I used to do tons of trial work in California. Um, and there's just like a lot of people and California kind of sets the tone going forward with their rulings. So let's say, for example, it's, it's California you know, real estate that you own, or you have a California business and you're a California resident, and then you set up a Wyoming LLC, and then you're going to hold a key piece of real estate in this Wyoming LLC. And you're, uh, you know, paying California franchise tax on this out-of-state Wyoming LLC. What you've done is just convert that Wyoming LLC to a California LLC because you're doing business in the state of California. You're paying the franchise tax in California. But if you ever have a liability issue in California, meaning a lawsuit, the judge in California is going to apply California law, not Wyoming law. And this is demonstrated beautifully, again, in a recent 2023 Supreme Court case named Mallory versus Norfolk, N-O-R-F-O-L-K, where the Supreme Court upheld a Pennsylvania statute that forces companies to face litigation within the borders that it's registered to do business in. So I'm going to repeat that because it's very important. And then when, like, when lawyers and professors repeat things, it's generally going to be worth writing down because it's on the test. It forces companies to face litigation within the borders that is registered to do business in. This case now opens the door for other states to adopt similar registration requirements. So state courts are permitted to exercise jurisdiction over registered foreign corporations that let's say are holding your real estate in just as if they're domestic corporations of, the, of, of that state. And I know not all of your, your listeners are you know, real estate investors and they're business individuals. I'm going to talk about that in about one minute. Um, so just remember, you're legally required to record your out-of-state LLCs known as foreign entities and pay the franchise tax. So you don't just take Wyoming or Delaware tort and damage and personal injury laws with you to other states. You can't just go and purchase another state's more beneficial laws. And this also applies now potentially to um, business contracts. All right. And so like when you're creating a business entity and structure, we're going to have to now see how the cases flush out with that one. We're just talking about business to business. This next distinction is really important though, okay? This is tort and personal injury liability versus a confusion of business law and contract law. This is really where we have to understand what the assets are that you have. So when we're setting up a business and we're creating contracts, we can and should include choice of law clauses and venue provisions. You see them in every contract that you've ever signed saying, you know, what state any potential claim or dispute can be brought in. 
But when we're setting up a business to sell like widgets or a product in a different state, we can incorporate in Nevada or Delaware or Wyoming or any of those good charging order protection states and use those states as a choice of law clause and the venue provisions to govern, all right, air quotes here, internal disputes and affairs of the business. And again, I'm going to say that again, hint, hint, right, to govern internal disputes and affairs of the business. But again, when it comes to real estate, and LLCs acting as holding companies for you know rental properties or assets, that is not a business. When a person gets injured on your property or sues your LLC or sues you for damages due to you know wrongful doings and negligence, um, you know those are just like legal fancy words. That's not a business dispute. That is a tort liability. We're actually talking about wrongful acts and infringements on rights. So you know cases like tort liabilities do not relate to internal affairs or corporate governance matters. And so they're seen as outside the entity. So you really don't have corporate bill protection in those matters. And so there's going to be no litmus test that really exists to see, you know, for me to tell you, is your corporate bill going to be pierced? This is really going to be a case by case basis. And the seminal case on veil piercing is actually a California case is named Associated Vendors Incorporated versus Auckland Meat Company it came down in 1962. That they laid out the court laid out 20 reasons for justifying piercing your veil. I'm not going to list them all, but just realize I'm going to name the top five. All right. And probably you and your listeners right now can probably like check mark a few of those commingling of funds or other assets, using funds for something other than corporate uses, failure to maintain adequate corporate records or confusion of the records, the use of corporate uh, corporation as a mere shell or undercapitalization, which is the vaguest term in the world, but it's one that's used multiple times to pierce your veil. That's just five of the 20, all right? And so I'm pretty sure, like I said, you can put a check mark off a couple of those right there. So for those, and a lot to unpack there, right? A yeah. lot, which uh, I don't know if we'll get through on this podcast, but all good. So for the the lawyers that say, Hey, I think a great way to start, I'm a business owner and I got a couple operating entities, maybe some real estate, everything's in its own LLC. Hey, go go set up a holding company that doesn't do any business, but it just holds your shares in those other businesses. What are your thoughts around that? Is that even protected? Is that a viable strategy um, in one of those Delaware and Wyoming, Nevada? I know that the laws are starting to trend to where those aren't as valuable anymore, but can you share with us if that structure is even remotely making sense in, the, in a climate like today? Yeah, it, does. It, it it has value because what what are you doing? You're creating another layer of protection that the person suing you has to pierce through, right? So remember, law firms are businesses. There's a profit margin. There's a profit line. Um, so we have to look at, say, I'm suing you, right? and I'm looking at the case and whatever it's about. If I'm only going to get about a hundred thousand dollars out of this case, and I have to spend sixty to get a hundred, would I take the case? No, it's, the profit margin is not really there for me. Um, if I need to spend sixty or hundred as a million dollar case, yeah. I have no problem. It's not going to bankrupt my business or anything like that. You know, like we got the war chest for it. So you got to realize law firms are businesses. What's the lawsuit about? You know, how many layers do I have to pierce? What's the likelihood of getting a judgment out of it? That's where like that last layer for asset protection trust and going offshore is the ultimate deterrent. Great. Yeah. Valid claim, valid case, valid judgment. But my, I have my foreign trust. You're never going to see a dollar or a penny from me here. Take the penny on the dollar and leave. Goodbye. Um, that's the importance of having very strong layered up protection. Um, specifically to yours regarding management companies, I use a management company. The way we layer it out is risky assets go in LLCs. The LLCs are disregarded and flow into um, 
uh, limited partnerships. I prefer limited partnerships for management companies just because of how they're statutorily set up, which is a distinction versus a Wyoming LLC or other LLCs. You can't separate out management from ownership statutorily with LLCs like I can with limited partnerships. Like that's literally how limited partnerships are designed. So when I have my big time client investors and we look where money's being wired from is generally from a partnership or a trust, not from a Wyoming LLC. Um, just by, again, the statutory nature of limited partnerships. Um, but I would use a management company, whether you want to have the LLCs flow into Wyoming or Delaware or a, a limited partnership depends on how big of a fish you are at the end of the day. And then how many more layers I need to add? Like, do I need to add the trust for you? Do I want to use an LLC? No, because there's no, there's no connection mechanism for me to properly do it to where I want you to be the managing member. So the GP. And then I want your trust to own the management company, which is the LP portion of it. And that way I'm separating out legally management from ownership. Sure. Okay, great. So so to, to go back a little bit, you'd said, hey, it, this makes sense to have in place before a lot of things. Sure. But a lot of business owners are thinking like, hey, I need to go make money first. Like they're not thinking like, let me go protect everything. So a lot of the times people are just going to like start building and then like, oh, crap. They look back five years later, like I now have a company doing 20, 30 million dollars. Now I have some stuff that I need to protect. What are like, I've heard things like a type F reorganization that don't, um, that don't create this taxable event. Like what other strategies are there to start chipping away without creating massive taxable events or making it a little bit easier to start creating some type of asset protection structure um, while you already have a bunch of assets accumulated? Yeah. It just depends on, on if, if they own, if it's just like a, you know, self, made business and they don't have any business entity and structure there's realistically like there's not a taxable event on them but they own everything in their personal name it's just a matter of transferring assets in the correct bucket that they have if you start transferring assets out of like i said like okay like i created this one business entity structure i created a c-corp or an s-corp you're gonna have a taxable event like i'm sorry to break it to you like there's there what we can do then is say okay we need to talk you know, and refer you to a good wealth manager and CPA, which then will cost money, right? And so, um, and then they're going to be like, okay, they're going to give you their advice on how we can bleed out assets, you know, through other investment strategies or not to transfer the assets out and, and minimize, you know, the hit that you're going to have on your tax bill. But just realize you, by transferring assets in and out of business entities, you're going to have a taxable event. How much? It just depends on what kind of magic your wealth manager or CPA can do for you. Sure. Okay. My, my advice would be think about these things beforehand and plan, you know, like, yeah, I'm starting a small mom and pop thing right now. And my taxable event is going to be probably really small because I'm probably not even going to be making a hundred thousand dollars in the, in the year, but you have to start talking to your CPA and say, Hey, the goal is I want to be making like, you know, half a million in year two or three. What am I supposed to be doing as I get to these measures? Do I put myself on payroll? Do I, you know, start setting up solo 401ks and start moving money into like self-directed accounts and things like that. Um, so that's where you just need to, again, stay ahead of the eight ball and don't just kick the can down the road. It's when you kick the can down the road. And then, like you said, you wake up 20 years later, like, holy my God, like I was successful, but now look at how much risk I have and what do I do? That's when you get a really big bill for me in the mail. Sure. So now you've talked a lot about this hybrid trust and these yeah. asset protection structures, these offshore trusts. Um, I know TikTok and Instagram is always like, hey, put everything in the trust. I have everything in my trust and then I, yeah. I put it in my life insurance policy and then I, I take a loan from there and everything in the world is tax-free. 
I have to imagine yeah. that's not the case. Um, <laughs> how do trust play a factor into this? How do we set them up right? And where can we create a structure to where we're not paying the same tax rates that trusts normally pay, but also have our assets protected in the best manner? Yeah. So for one, you need to realize asset protection is tax neutral. Okay. So by setting up, you know, LLCs, you know, limited partnerships and an asset protection trust, just because you set them up doesn't mean you're going to get a tax benefit from them or tax anything. It's all going to be disregarded in tax neutral. What your CPA can do with everything is different. And so that's when they start working their magic. But just, and we can talk about tax havens and, and tax schemes and, and that, but just remember you're taxed on your worldwide income. I don't care if you're like Elon Musk and you, you know, start drilling in an asteroid in space and you make a trillion dollars in space, you're still a U.S. resident. So you still are going to be paying, a, you know, taxes on your trillion dollar asteroid mining operation, um, you know, on your worldwide income and your galactic income, you know, to the IRS. So just realize you're going to, you know, worldwide income you're going to be taxed on. And I get this call a lot and we can break that down if we've got time, <laughs> time after. But in the world of trust, right? I think the biggest thing to understand, I love trust, all right? You know, like they are the longest lasting entities of all entities. And when they're done right, they're just very, very strong because we can sculpt them to fit how you need them with and avoid the funding issues that generally come with LLCs and business entities that get them pierced. It's just really important, uh, you know, picking the right trust out. And this is like a big misconception, right? Think of Baskin Robbins. Like the, I think most people want to know who Baskin Robbins is, you know, like the, the ice cream store, you know, ice cream company. Trusts come in lots of different flavors and types, just like ice cream, you know, Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors. The standard 101 trust that you kind of were like alluding to that everybody is generally going to be familiar with started in the 1960s. This is the revocable living trust, your family trust, your estate plan. Trusts don't die. So when you do, when you actually funded your trust and transferred you know, ownership and title to it, you don't have to go through the courts and probate and it just changed the landscape of estate planning. But that's for estate planning, not for asset protection planning. Then you start hearing people on like investment shows and business you know, um, shows talk about land trust, for especially, really for real estate. And that holds your land and you connect them to LLCs. But land trust, just because it has the word trust on it, they don't have protection in and of themselves. They're only as strong as the LLC that they connect to. So they're just a privacy mechanism, not a protection mechanism. And we already know LLCs can be pierced, right? So from here, you have higher levels of trust. And these are called asset protection trust. And here, if you want me to dive into breaking down the asset protection trust, if you want, um, you'll probably know more than 99% of all attorneys out there. Yeah. All right. So... Asset protection trust came into play in the early 1980s, all right? And an asset protection trust is what's called a self-settled spendthrift trust. All self-settled means is that it's created for yourself. So they're for you, by you, as your own beneficiary. And they have very important spendthrift provisions in them. And these spendthrift provisions, they let you protect your assets while you're actually living from creditors and not having to relinquish control of your assets, the difference is they allow you to protect the assets, not just for your grandkids, but for yourself, which you weren't allowed to do in the past. And again, you know, you're somewhat probably familiar with one form of self-settled trust, like the revocable living trust. Um, again, some of your family members have them, aunts, uncles, grandparents, whatever. The difference is that with an asset protection version of this trust, it includes these critical provisions called spendthrift provisions. And these spendthrift provisions are the teeth of this. They're what protects your assets from creditors. Um, and for these to work, the trust has to be not revocable, 
but irrevocable. So it's a very different type of trust. Again, just like chocolate and vanilla, right? They're both ice cream, just different, very different flavors of ice cream. So what's the difference between irrevocable versus revocable? Like, why do we care, Brian, right? The concept of irrevocability is pretty simple. Irrevocable means any action once done can't be undone. So for example, once you jump off a bridge, you're off. There's no undoing it. You know, there's no going back up unless you have a bungee cord. So at a starting point, creating an irrevocable trust is just like jumping off a bridge. Once it's created, you can't revoke it. Its purpose and its terms are fixed and no changes are allowed. But this is not always the case. It is actually possible to create a trust that's irrevocable, meaning we can't revoke the trust itself, but we still it still leaves room for flexibility to its terms, including who the beneficiaries are and how the trust assets are distributed and even conditions you know, where certain actions can or maybe be taken. And so what we're doing now is attaching a bungee cord to portions of the trust so that we can modify them later on. And this is what's known in the legal world as flexible irrevocability, and the courts are completely fine with this. And then there are ways to use these irrevocable trusts to incorporate these solid spendthrift provisions while keeping creditors away from them and still removing the risk of the U.S. courts tossing your trusts away. This is the bait, you know, like in, the, in a case named Bately versus Mortison. Um, what we're doing is removing the U.S. courts by using very strong offshore jurisdictions that provide us a statutory safe environment with very clear and defined case law history where we know where the results are going to be more certain, like in the Cook Islands. And then what we do for ease of purpose and use is we bridge the trust back from the Cook Islands and have the IRS for tax purposes identify and classify the trust as a domestic trust so we don't have to do all the foreign disclosures, fact of disclosures, 1035, 1035As. So now we're kind of getting the best of both worlds. We're getting the power of the offshore component with the ease and simplicity tax-wise of the domestic. And then God forbid you're in a doomsday lawsuit, I remove you as the main trustee, I break that compliance with the IRS classification, we are what we are, foreign trust. And then we have the full power um, behind us at that point. So correct me if I'm wrong, essentially that gives you the irrevocable, it's like an irrevocable, self-settled, spendthrift type of structure it has the ability to act on the domestic side. And at any given point, you hit the red stop button, it shoots overseas, essentially. Correct? So it is. Yeah. So from day one, a hybrid trust is created as a foreign Cook Islands grantor trust. That's what it is. Okay. Right? From the day it's created. And then the issue with a purely foreign trust, right? Very expensive. Right. You're out of control of them. You're under the, you know, they got the foreign trustee. That's why they're so powerful. But the issue with them is like the cost and then the IRS disclosures. You're talking about $12,000 a year just to maintain. So most people are like, this is just out of control. Like I'm not going to pay that much, even if you have a lot of money to set them up. So people go cheap and say, I'm going to create a domestic trust, right? The problem with this, they're not effective. Just all of them are getting pierced now, left and right. Right. But they're very easy on um, the IRS because there's no tax disclosures. So what you do is you create a foreign trust. So a foreign Cook Island trust. And then under code section USC 7701, that is called the court test control test. The IRS will say, hey, Landon, I know you have this foreign Cook Island trust. As long as you comply with these two standards, we'll classify it as a domestic trust. And that just means I have to name you and your spouse, if you're married as a trustee, and a state called the situs of where the trust will be domiciled. Doesn't mean I'm creating like, I'll just say Nevada. 
doesn't mean I'm creating a Nevada Asset Protection Trust. It just means I'm naming Nevada as the situs in the trust. Mm. I was going to ask about state. I was going to ask about state jurisdiction because I know most states don't allow that self-settled spendthrift domestic right. type of structure. I'm probably missing a word somewhere in there, but correct. Okay. So, like California, we'll use California for example. Um, California case Kilker versus Steelman, 2012, came down and said we're, we're tired of you California residents running off to Nevada and creating a Nevada asset protection trust. You're not a Nevada resident. Stop it. We're not recognizing them anymore. All right. And so if you're a resident in these states that don't recognize asset protection trust or self-settled spendthrift legislations, you're really, realistically, your your only option you have is a hybrid trust. And so then what we're going to do is create the offshore trust, pick a state like Nevada for the situs, and then name you as the trustee. And then while the trust doesn't have to be used, what's the benefit of it? Well, you don't need to use the trust right now. It's in existence, but now you're not doing the 1035-H. You're not doing the 1035 back, you know, disclosures, the fact of disclosures. And those just cost a lot of money. And then you have to fully disclose the trust and the assets in the trust. Most people don't want to do that. So by domesticating that foreign trust, it now makes it cheaper to maintain. But we have that strength in the back pocket. Right. Now, to answer part 1B of your question what happens if I need to trigger it? Well, when I trigger it, remember, it is a foreign trust. It's just domesticated. So the IRS is just classifying this foreign trust as a domestic trust. So when I break that bridge and remove you as the trustee, I'm not moving the assets now to my offshore component. It's just one trust. All I'm doing is removing you as the trustee. And now I'm no longer in compliance with that two-pronged test of the IRS code. So now it can't be classified as a domestic trust. It is what it is, a foreign trust. And then the you know, we got the power to negotiate. The case settles for a penny on the dollar. It's not a one-way street. So I can then rebuild the bridge by complying with the IRS code section. And this is how you get that benefit, you know, of both worlds. The power of the offshore, the, the flexibility and ease of the domestic, like a hybrid car, right? We're just taking the best of both, combining them together for a better product. I love it. I love it. And what type of assets are we looking to put in here? Because I, I hear some people arguing it's like, not putting your operating entities inside of these structures. Uh, so what are you looking to put in there. Yeah. So the way you should identify split not identify is a bad analogy. The word the way you should split up the assets is if you think of it you know, like a hierarchy at the base, you know, like your clothing, or if we're going to look at it like another image, like a ladder going up the rung, the base level on the bottom are your LLCs, your risky assets, your business entities or like holding companies, holding real estate or whatever, you know, business structures. Those are going to be disregarded flowing up the pyramid into your management company. We use a limited partnership. Somebody else might use a Wyoming LLC. So I'm just going to say like us because I like the limited partnership version of it better. So LLCs, risky assets flow into, disregarded into the limited partnership. Then there's going to be one K1 issued. I don't care if you have 100 LLCs. They're all going to be flowing into the limited partnership. Easy for taxes. 1K1 issued to you with the one-page attachment called the 1065. You now and your spouse, if you're married, are the managing member of your limited partnership. Your trust owns the limited partnership. Because the trust is domesticated, there's no tax required and there's no tax reporting of the trust because it's a domesticated grantor's trust. Got it. Okay. Because now we, we had a gentleman on our podcast talk about the irrevo- I'll probably botch this, but the irrevocable complex non-grantor spendthrift trust that basically allows. <laughs> I think I got. Yeah. I think I got- oh, sorry. 
I, I think I got that one right, because like there's this long wording and he, he, he spoke about this thing like it's the best thing since sliced bread and that he's never paid taxes in his life. But then I've, also, I've seen multiple articles and videos about how it's not really the case. Can you shed yeah. some light on that? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna dog somebody else's version of of their trust, but I'm gonna. I'm gonna talk about it in generality. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm gonna do it through. Um, I, I'm gonna do this topic through. You know what to avoid, like tax havens and scams. Okay. Um, think. Like I was saying, you know, thinking that asset protection means not paying taxes or moving or hiding assets or setting up a trust or a business entity and like I'm never paying taxes again because I set up this amazing trust. Like that's just a definition of scams. Okay, um, you're going to have to pay taxes, and if someone's telling you this, it's just illegal and it's fraud, and you can you're the one that's going to potentially go to jail for it. Um, but again, tax mitigation is legal, and there's a lot of people who set up business entities and trust um, and have a lot of assets and a lot of money and they don't pay taxes, right? That's completely legal. That's completely fine. That's done with your wealth managers and your CPAs taking advantage of the tax code as a treasure map, how you should be as a smart investor, right? Like that's smart. Now, asset protection is about limiting liability and risk from lawsuits and creditors coming after your assets and your money. It is not about hiding or moving assets to avoid paying or disclosing your assets. I'm going to say it again, disclosing your assets. What we need to understand is that, especially in the world that I work in, the offshore stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, you know, stick it with, with that right the second. Offshore asset protection planning will not reduce your taxes. If someone is telling you this, it is a scam. And this is why we don't use the Caymans or Belize or the Bahamas. They're all red flag. The scam works like this. And it can be the same thing as a domestic um, trust setup as well, because I hear it with, um, no, I'm not going to do like long-winded version of what you did, but like Delaware Statutory Trust. You know, I, I'm going to fall asleep saying that one. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, so the scam works by a promoter, you know, sometimes an attorney or a CPA or just straight up a salesman. They're not even, you know, lawyers trying to sell the idea that if you don't have your money in the U.S., then you don't have to pay or owe any taxes on it until you bring it back to the U.S. So just don't bring it back. The fact is that the IRS taxes you again on worldwide income, plain and simple. You have the annual FACTA disclosures, offshore wire transfer disclosures, 1035, 1035As. It does not matter again, like at the Elon Musk example, where you earn your money. If you are a U.S. citizen, you are a U.S. taxpayer and you owe the taxes. You have to disclose it. The problem with this scam is that when the IRS takes a look at your plan, it's it, it not only will not protect you, but it may leave you again with a massive tax bill. The bottom line is that asset protection planning and tax planning do not go together. This is rule number one. It is oil and water. They don't mix. Anyone promising you to help you legally evade paying taxes using, again, like any offshore entity or like, hey, set up these Delaware statutory trusts and avoid paying franchise tax. Yeah, you can avoid paying the franchise tax, but it's not going to give you any asset protection. They're just lying to you. And if you're involved in a scheme like this, whether you were duped into it, you know, or it was intentional on your end, it, it's just going to be a matter of time until you go down. And the, and in fact, I really want you guys, you know, your listeners and you to go, go to the IRS website. They're very, very clear on this. They have a page dedicated to identifying abusive tax evasion schemes. And the IRS specifically lists trust being used to reduce income taxes through abusive techniques that aren't allowed by the IRS code. And just a few of these for you guys to listen to, you know, to hear are 
underreported income, avoiding filing tax returns, failing to report overseas wiring income, attempting to protect transactions through bankrupt secrecy laws and tax haven countries and more, dot, dot, dot. There's a whole list of them. Yeah. So to hop over to back to the asset protection side and the value of like the offshore Cook Island side of things. So correct me if I'm wrong, but for the listeners that are kind of like, what the heck are they talking about these offshore things? I've heard about this foreignly, but what's the benefit of this from a protection standpoint? They don't recognize any U.S. judgment or court orders. Uh, like Correct. statute of limitations is relatively short. It's a very s- final and short type of uh, scope yeah. is my understanding. Yeah. You want me to just um, go through the whole list of them real quick? Please, please. If yeah, you You're doing a great job. I mean, it shows that you guys really listen to a lot of my stuff. Yeah. So I re- you have a good re- you know retention. But yeah, statutory non-recognition, right? Like that's the main thing about it. And what this fancy word of statutory non-recognition means is that um, – they're not recognizing any other country's court orders or judgments in the world at all, including the U.S. And so that's very powerful. Um, the other ones are there's these like seven really strong statutory standards. If someone wants to sue you or your trust in the Cook Islands, they would have to actually start their case all over from scratch and go down there to the Cook Islands. The person suing you would have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the murder standard, the highest legal standard in the world, the 99% sure standard, which is incredibly difficult to meet. Um, you know, in the U.S., for a civil case, it's just 51% standard called the preponderance of the evidence. They're like, yeah, you know, I, I like them. I don't really like them. I think more likely than not, that's what happened. Um, you know, like, just give it to them. Sure. Um, but beyond a reasonable doubt standard, like this is the strongest standard in the world. Uh, you can't get a contingency fee attorney to represent you because they are not allowed down there. It is unethical in the Cook Islands, just like it used to be unethical here in the United States. But we changed that in the 60s because lawyers realized that if you can't, you know, we can't get part of the action because we can't get enough lawsuits going. So that got changed so we can promote more lawsuits. The claim, meaning the lawsuit, it is not amendable. Again, meaning once you file your complaint, that's it. You can't change it or amend it after discovery like you can in the United States. I used to do this all the time when I was you know, doing lots of trial work. It's common practice in the U.S. to file a lawsuit, and then the discovery process starts going around, and I start digging things up, and then I amend my complaint and go, oh, well, but I found this. It's a different thing, but we didn't know about this thing, so now we're going to change our mind and sue you for some completely different other thing that we thought we were suing you for. That's not allowed in the Cook Islands. You can't do that. You can't amend your claim. Once it's filed, it's filed. That's it. The person suing you has to front the entire court cost and fly in a judge from New Zealand. And you cannot take your U.S. attorney with you there. And then this one is really great. I love this one. If you lose, you pay. And this is one of the single worst things that we don't have here in the United States, that the loser does not need to pay the legal fees and costs of the winner. So if you get sued by somebody for a completely bogus reason, I mean, just a completely frivolous lawsuit, and you spend $200,000 defending yourself from legal fees, and I'm being you know, kind of lowballing it right there, and then the judge finally agrees with you and says, yeah, this is a bunch of BS lawsuit. I'm throwing this thing out. You're still out $200,000. Mm-hmm. That person that sued you is not going to be getting the bill because our legal system in the United States, that would discourage lawsuits. But our legal system is run by trial lawyers who don't want to discourage lawsuits. So they won't be getting the bill for that. But in the Cook Islands, they don't have that system. And then like you mentioned before, there's only a one-year statute of limitations. And then we actually – we can create the trust to where it's a zero-day statute of limitations because the Cook Islands recognizes the um, Belize statutes, which is a zero-day statute of limitations. So we backdoor it back into the Belize statute of limitations. So it knocks it down to a zero-day statute of limitations. 
I mean, we've done 500 podcasts at this point, and this is the most fun I've ever had. Like, it, it is just like we are nerding out here. And thank you so much for going as deep as possible. And I know, like, we're we're nearing this wrap up point. Um, can I give you a specific scenario? And like, I know that asset protection is very nuanced. So, like, don't don't feel obligated to give like like specific advice, but like. Let, let, let's talk through a scenario of like a potential client and what you would do to, to start building out their asset protection structure. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. So client owns a main operating entity as a construction business doing about 20 million of top line, top line revenue operating maybe at 20%. So he's making a good amount of money, um, owns a, probably a million dollars worth of equipment inside that business, um, owns a home personally that's probably got 2 million of equity in it has a brokerage account liquid that's got a million bucks and some IRAs, 401ks and things like that. And maybe a little bit of real estate has nothing outside of like just that, that LLC is taxed as an S corp and mm-hmm. salary from there and then takes his distributions, files his tax returns and gets you yeah. know, fruit in taxes every year. How do we start chipping away at that asset protection structure? Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty standard profile actually. Um, one, so he would be a candidate for a full workup, you know, like LLCs, limited partnership, and we'd be talking about the hybrid trust. Um, the caveat here is like what a lot of people have coming in with the S corp with a lot of assets in it. So that's where we have to be like, okay, hey, here's the hangup. Now we need to know if we can bleed these assets out or not. And that's where the sticky point of this this hypothetical really really comes into play. I want you to keep your business as the S corp, use it as a tax mitigation strategy, money coming in. But I would like to be able to remove the assets out of the S corp. And into you know their own LLC, lease them back to the business, but at least protects your your um, equipment or whatever whatever it is that the company you know is owned and using. Um, from that aside, we already know you know what the issue is with S corp is. Rental properties would go under the base layer LLCs as a holding company. He would need a limited he or she would need a limited partnership as a management company, and then what would go under the management company would be non risky assets. So. You're, um, we would hold cash. We can hold cash in there, create a business bank account, start holding cash. You don't want to hold cash, a lot of cash in your personal name. Um, stock accounts, if they're not 401ks and IRAs, because those have exemptions, we leave those alone. But your personal brokerage accounts that are not retirement accounts can go directly into the limited partnership and protect your stock accounts, your vested shares, cryptocurrencies, um, you know, intellectual property. So anything that does not have a key, does not need insurance, and does not go boom can go directly into the management company, the limited partnership. Right. So, now we're, yeah. so do we need two separate management companies to own operating entities and hold co's or can they own, can your management company own real estate and business operating entities? It can hold, it, it, it can hold real estate. You know, the real estate would go into the LLCs. Those LLCs would be hold held by the limited partnership. It depends now on how that the operating business that you're talking about is it an S corp or a C corp? If it is, then no, it can't go into a limited partnership. Sure. It's going to have to exist out on its own. And that's where I'd rather leave it as the big red box danger zone. That's going to get sued, but make it worthless and then move the assets and the, and the like holding cash into the asset protection structure. And that way you can keep operating through your face company and then let that thing get sued. If it gets sued and then protect everything else. I love it. I love it. And, and what, what is the school workup cost? About so from an LLC to the limited partnership with the bridge trust, you're talking about thirty thousand five hundred. Um, you know, on a, like we we price ourselves pretty simple. You know, a hybrid trust is generally around twenty three thousand. 
Limited partnerships done by law firms are going to generally be around seven thousand five hundred. Um, most firms will charge you know ballpark fifteen hundred per LLC, and that comes with like operating agreements, helping transfer assets over, and all of that. You know, like you want things done properly and not just trying to do Google operating agreements because again, when you do get sued, who's suing you? An attorney who's a shark who's going through everything and looking for one wrong word to completely tear everything apart. And to think that you're you're going to be smarter than that attorney, you know, I, I just don't see that happening because this and, is like literally the world we live in. An annual compliance cost, what is that? Like annual compliance and maintenance cost, what does that look yeah. like? Yeah. Yeah, it uh, it depends. Like if you were to, again, like if you're a purely foreign, which why I don't advocate for purely foreign, it's way overkill. You're talking about ten, twelve thousand dollars a year. If you're using a hybrid trust, generally about three thousand dollars a year. Okay. But that's also you're, you're maintaining the, a foreign trust, domesticating it, plus maintaining the limited partnership in the minutes. Um, and then for us, I also factor in um, I don't want to send you an hourly rate. I just want you to call me, tell me what the heck's going on. So that goes into like you want to call me one time a year or a hundred times a year. I don't care. Just keep me informed. Your CPA has questions. Call me. Pick up the phone. This is a, this is us working together. I believe I interrupted you during your you're you're going through those those layers. I apologize if I did. If you did have some more information inside of that, please. Oh. Yeah, no. So the layers it would be the LLCs holding the risky stuff flowing into the management company, which would be a limited partnership, and then the trust owning the limited partnership, and then his personal residence will go directly into the trust. And the reason we don't put a primary residence into a business entity is because then you lose all the tax benefits off of it. And so by putting your primary directly into the trust, it's exempted from, you know, just like putting into a revocable living trust. You still can write off all of your, you know, interests and all, you know, all of your taxable benefits. And if you sell at the $250,000 tax credit, you don't lose any of that stuff. And we don't want you to. That's why your primary would go directly into the trust. And even if we're living a homestead, a state with homestead exemptions, is that it would just be more advantageous to put it in that hybrid? Yeah, I mean, it, you can, you know, if you're in Florida, do we need to? No, because it's 100% exempted. Texas really strong. The other states, I would probably say, yeah, I would sure. say let's do it. Even if it's, you know, 500,000, 600,000 exempt, I, there's, there's still money that's available. So let's put it into the trust. Land, do you have any extra questions before we... Near one, the last, one last question, promise. Uh, so where does the line go? Where is the line? And I'm sure it depends, obviously, right? But like, where does the line go to where, you know... It, Someone says, "Okay, I want to, I want to protect my assets, but maybe I'm not that big yet. Maybe, maybe the example Antonio just said, maybe I'm not there yet. Maybe I'm, you know, making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. Or maybe I'm a business owner. Maybe I'm a W two employee. Maybe I inherited a bunch of money. Regardless, like, what are some fundamental things everyday Americans can be doing to protect their assets a little bit better? Yeah. And a lot of times, we're seeing folks that are just kind of everyday citizens. They're like, oh, I want to put everything in a trust. Well." Obviously, we're not attorneys, so we're not saying to do that or to not do that. But what does that look like fundamentally for everyday Americans as well? Yeah. So just realize it's a sliding scale, right? Mm -hmm. So don't be like, hey, I want to go spend 30 grand today and create the Taj Mahal of an asset protection plan, but I don't got two pennies to rub together. Right. Well, that's, you know, what is it? What is the saying? Like English saying like penny wise, dollar stupid or something like that. But, you know, it's like be smart with your money. So you start where do you start? You start where you're at. So if you have nothing and you're like, hey, I have a business idea that I want to go and do, you know, or I'm going to buy my first rental property, where do you start? LLC and insurance. If you can't get an LLC and insurance, don't do an investment. Don't create a business. Like is that, that just comes with operating costs. Okay. So you got to be smart. So if you're going to jump into something, jump in, at least know the base layer stuff that you need. LLC, insurance. Then you're going to start growing, right? So I would say base layer, you're at zero units or like no money to 250000 in in net worth, okay? 
then you're going to be growing. You're going to be expanding. Once you hit kind of that 500,000 exposed net worth mark, meaning, you know, yeah, I got a couple rental properties. I have my business. I'm probably, you know, cash flowing, you know, you know not cash flowing, but profit line of like 100,000, 200,000 with my business. I may or may not have an employee. It's irrelevant. It's a matter of what the risk is with the company. Um, I have my house. Um, that's when we start talking about limited partnerships. Maybe I'm investing in a couple of different states and I need different LLCs. So I need to start consolidating and having a more, um, a better uh, IRS, you know, tax filing system, you know, again, one tax return. That's where the limited partnership comes into play. Then we're, we're investing more. We have more assets. We have like 10 LLCs. I have my business. My business has like a couple employees or I'm making, you know, 500 grand, you know, after taxes a year. Maybe I'm a doctor. I have a risky profession. Then that trust comes into play because now you're probably making about a you know a million or more you know not making but you have about a million or more of exposed net worth. That's when the trust comes into play. So when you scale, just realize start where you're at. You can go from LLC and insurance to the management company to trust. Most of my half of my clients would be like management company, so limited partnership and LLCs. Then we add the trust afterwards, and then the other half are like you need everything. Like you're just way late to the game. So. One, I, I appreciate you taking the time, man. We're, we went over the time and we were still, you're, you're still rocking and rolling, man. We could, we could go on forever with this stuff. Um, but a, as we near this wrap up point, like what's next for Brian? I mean, super established lawyer, great law firm, billions of dollars in asset protection. Uh, what, what's next for you, man? Um, you know, like I like what I'm doing. I'm, you know, got, had my book come out again, you know, and going to start, you know, next year talking, you know, doing more presentations with the book and, I got a couple gigs lined up there and I'm big into jujitsu and I just won my first, you know, I won eight international competitions, one world championship. So I'm just going to keep rocking that on and have some fun. And my girls are doing dance, spend time with my family, you know, just enjoy life. Dude, that's, that's incredible. Congratulations on the championships. Um, we are super excited to dive into the book. If anyone wants to follow you, connect with you, do business with you, where can they find you? Yeah, just jump on my website, www.btblegal.com. And I use it as an educational resource, tons of case law, tons of, you know, case studies. You want my book, jump on there, click the link. It'll take you straight over to get to the book um, and, you know, learn about asset protection. That's why I wrote the book, you know, because like we we're talking about off screen, there was, there's no one resource to say, hey, here's all the levels. Here's the pros and cons of everything. Here's kind of the matrix and let's walk you through this through a history, you know, a story. Um, and that, that doesn't exist. And so it needed to be put out there. And so I would say jump on the website, do your due diligence. And that way you have good questions to ask lawyers when you call them. Awesome. Well, appreciate you so much, Brian. Thank you for your time and we'll chat soon. Absolutely. Thank you.